1: Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm Dan Pfeiffer. Later in the pod, you'll hear Dan's conversation with friend of the pod Marcy Wheeler about the latest in the Mueller investigation. Fascinating conversation you had with Marcy, Dan. I listened in. Um, I can't wait for everyone to hear I kn- it. I knew you. I knew you.
2: Sometimes when we do the interviews, you like drink coffee or something in the other room. But I knew if it was Marcy with interesting information on the Mueller investigation. You would definitely listen. I
1: follow. All, I follow all of Marcy's tweets. Uh, she is my. Entry point into the Russia investigation always so one of one of my favorite guests We've got a lot of news to discuss as well from the deal to keep the government open to the dueling rallies that President Trump and Beto O'Rourke had on the border earlier this week To a new analysis that shows how Howard Schultz can only help Donald Trump win re-election Also check out this week's Pod Save the World where Tommy has a really interesting thoughtful conversation with Peter Beinart about the Ilhan Omar controversy Really great episode Um Also, check out Cricket.com slash events for our tour schedule. We just had a great swing down south, and in April, we're headed to Boston and New Hampshire. So uh, come see us. It'll be fun. All right, let's get to the news. As we're recording this, the Senate and then the House will be voting on a budget to fund the government and avoid another shutdown. As a reminder, Trump shut down the government the first time because the Senate's budget only included... $1.6 billion for fencing and border barriers when Trump wanted $5.7 billion for a wall. So then, after a 35-day shutdown and weeks of negotiations, Trump is expected to sign a budget that includes not $5.7 billion for a wall, not even the original $1.6 billion for fencing and border barriers that he rejected, but a little less than $1.4 billion for about 55 miles of fencing on the 2,000-mile border. Art of the deal. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so obviously Trump could decide last minute to veto this bill because he's a stone-cold moron, but would he really have the power to stop it from passing, or would Congress at this point just override his veto? That's
2: a great question, and just to uh, give you some breaking news, Trump just tweeted, Reviewing the funding bill with my team at the White House! Exclamation point. So maybe we'll find out during this podcast what he's (laughs) going to do. I think he – I mean, he certainly has it within his power to say he's not going to sign it. And he could do that and there would be members of the Freedom Caucus who would side with him. The bigot brigade at Fox News would back him. But you get the sense this time that the – Republican senators are not likely to follow him over the cliff on this, and you don't. Yeah. You know, I never want to. You know, it's one of our rules here at America that we don't put a lot of stock into the courage and independence of Republican elected officials. But it feels like there's not a, that Trump is on a limited leash here, and it would be very hard for him to get enough Republican senators to side with him to shut the government down again for essentially no reason.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think what the Republicans learned through the shutdown is what we all saw. They can all read polling information. They can see, you know, the protests and of, you know, federal officials, the uh, air traffic controllers who didn't want to show up for work because they weren't getting paid, the contractors who didn't get paid. I mean, the shutdown was a political disaster for Donald Trump and the Republican Party took their polling down to new levels. Um, I don't think they have the appetite for that again <laughs> i mean we'll we'll see but i don't i i i think that's why trump seems to be reluctantly going to sign this bill though as you said he just tweeted that he's reviewing it now he um, also
2: he's he's not reviewing it because reviewing it requires reading words and numbers and neither of those are his chosen way of getting information he
1: yeah i mean the longest thing he's read uh, in the last couple of months are is a, a Chiron on fox news so i guess the question now is what's next for the wall trump said on wednesday quote the wall is very very on its way it's happening as we speak you'd have to be in extremely good shape to get over this one they would be able to climb mount everest a lot easier i think it's just like unbelievable <laughs> so the white house the white house says he's either going to take money from other agencies to fund the wall or declare a national emergency uh, will either of these options work what are the sort of the drawbacks to each of these options
2: you know it
1: both of them
2: have two risks, one being legal risk that particularly sort of declaring a national emergency, um, you cannot really do that to go around the will of Congress Um and since this is a solution that would take years to implement for a fake problem that isn't happening now, as Trump claims, it seems that at least some courts, uh, at least before we get to uh, Brett Kavanaugh's revenge theater in Supreme Court, would strike that down. And Congress, uh, the appropriators in Congress, even Republicans and Democrats, are pretty uh, – they get a little irked when you – start just taking money from one pot and putting it in another. So there are some risks to doing it, but ultimately that I'm not sure matters to Trump because he he doesn't need to build the wall. He may not even really want to build the wall because if it were to if he were to have this in Mount Everest like impenetrable barrier that would prevent him from scaring people about armies of women and children coming to America in to flee violence, then it would probably be a blow to his political strategy, but he can also lie about it. And just, you know, like in this, he's like, he's right now attacking Democrats for blocking the wall and patting himself on the back for building the wall. And there seems to be at least uh, some inconsistency in the messaging, but that's sort of how Trump rolls.
1: Yeah. I mean, look, Mark Meadows, who rolls with the very Trumpiest of the house Republicans, uh, said on Wednesday, if he signed the bill based on what has been reported and suggested is in the bill and did nothing else, it would be political suicide. Um, so, you know, is he right, right? Like Trump's central campaign promise in 2016 was that he would build a wall across our 2000 mile border with Mexico. He has built zero miles of wall. He is up for re-election next year. Um, as you pointed out, even if he goes with the national emergency, that probably gets held up in court. Even if he tries to reappropriate money from other agencies, um, you know, who may not be happy about that and Congress may not be happy about that. Um, you look, look, there's a provision in, in, in the funding bill right now that says communities along the border get to review any sort of wall or fencing or barriers that's going up on, you know, uh, all where they live for a little while before it happens. I mean, it seems like under any scenario, no matter what Trump does, he ain't getting a wall built before 2020. So what does that mean as he heads into re-election? Does he just keep lying and does the lying work?
2: (laughs) I, you know, there is this school of thought that that would be some blow to Trump's re-election prospects where he said he'd build the wall, he didn't build the wall, therefore he failed and therefore he would lose. I could not disagree with that more. I don't believe... Trump's voters love Trump because they love the wall. I think they love the wall because they love Trump. And therefore, they're not going to – I just it's hard to imagine the voter who thinks the wall is the most important thing and is then going to either walk away from the person most associated with the wall because it's not yet built. The wall is – Like, I think even voters understand the wall is a political metaphor for racism and xenophobia. And they just want someone who will speak proudly of racism and xenophobia more so than they want, like, actual mortar and brick being put on the border of the United States.
1: Yeah, I think that's that's probably largely true. I do wonder if for – again, these aren't, like, hardcore Trump fans, but sort of borderline Trump supporters, people who voted for Trump – This could feed into a larger narrative about broken promises as we head into re-election or as Trump heads into re-election, which, of course, every president running for re-election faces. I mean, in the era of pre-Trump, right, when it was just normal politics, you run for president, you make promises, you then run for president again four years later, and you're judged by whether you kept those promises or not. Right. That's like simple politics. And I just remember... You know, I don't know why I was fucking watching this, but like, you know, I saw a clip of Ann Coulter talking to Bill Maher. Just kill me. Um, And she was uh, (laughs) and she was making this case. She's like, you know, the argument for liberals, for everyone right now is pretty easy because it's the same argument. She's like, I'm making against Trump right now, which is he made a bunch of promises and he didn't keep them. He said he was going to build a wall. He didn't build the wall. And he didn't do what he said he was going to do as president. And that's a problem. And I wonder if at some point you start, you know, that case starts building, if that becomes a problem for Trump.
2: So, two points on that. One, I do believe that voters give you credit for trying. And, you know, this was true with Obama yeah. and the economy in 2012. Um, They believed he – even though he hadn't achieved everything that everyone hoped in terms of an economic recovery after the financial crisis, they believed he was trying his best and that was worth something. And I think Trump's voters will probably believe he has tried on the wall. I do agree with you that broken promises is a very powerful message against Trump. But I think it is largely – I think the better argument there is going to be around – uh, the fact that he ran as a populist and governed as a corporatist. Yes. He ran as a reformer and governed as a, swamp a corrupt creature. Corrupt swamp <laughs> creature. Like, that seems to be the things that might have the most, yep. that he was not the change he promised, as opposed to not a Lyndon Johnson-like figure who could deliver a wall. But all of it, I think we're in agreement, is that there, Trump has left some openings here, and that this that is this, like this will at least hang over for some period of time with the and cultures of the world, and that just creates uh, interference in his da- daily life, and that makes it harder to get his message out.
1: So another question is, you know, did Democrats get the best deal they could, and if not, could they have gotten a better one? We know that Democrats made some progress trying to force to detain fewer immigrants in this deal, uh, but not as much as they originally wanted. We know the Democrats wanted the deal to include back pay for federal contractors who never got the money they lost during the shutdown. But Trump rejected that idea because, you know, he's never been big on paying contractors. Could Democrats have won these fights? What would it look like if they had just passed, you know, a continuing resolution to fund the government at previous levels? Were there other options here?
2: I think with one glaring exception, this deal is fine, right? And that's sort of the best you can hope for if you control one half of one branch of government um, is a deal that is fine. It's basically status quo of where we were before, right? There's some little money here for other things. Some things were addressed, but we didn't make any dramatic changes in immigration policy one way or the other. Um, And it's as as powerful and amazing as Nancy Pelosi is. There's only so much leverage she has cuz you still need not just a Republican Senate you also need to keep on board a handful of moderate democrats who are pretty uncomfortable with shutdown politics generally and so we're sort of limited i do think democrats dropped the ball on contractor back pay mm. i think this was there was a moral obligation to do this it was the right thing to do i think we Sometimes you get in these legislative negotiations, it's like you get one thing, we get the other thing, but these things are not equal. And I think if we had pushed hard on this, we could have gotten the Republicans to give. Because was Trump really going to shut down the government again, or were the Republicans really going to shut down the government again over contractor back pay? Yeah. Um, it's a, it's the absolutely the right thing to do. It's good policy, good politics. And I think that it we didn't fight hard enough for that. And I think that's really unfortunate because – These the contract in an economy where more and more people are being pushed towards contract work or or part time work or gig work. If we don't take a stand that those workers are equal to salary workers in terms of what they deserve, and then it's a it's it's simply the wrong thing to do and a fundamental mistake.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. And I'm 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 curious as to why they didn't push harder. I mean, I guess you know Friday is the deadline. The government gets shut down. No one wants to be the one uh, who caused another shutdown obviously Democrats don't but it's like I don't know I mean it it seems like it's an issue that is incredibly politically popular to pay people to pay workers who were stiffed by the government and stiffed by Trump shutdown so I don't know why you wouldn't uh Take a bigger stand on that. But I guess.
2: Yeah, it's not an ideological issue, right? It's not like we're asking Trump to. We're not asking Republicans to do something they are theoretically uh, or they're actually supposed to be opposed to, right? If you are. Because they're for back pay for government workers. So it's sort of like we just let. We just. This was too hard. So we decided not to do it. And I I just think that's a. I know these things are hard and no one wants to shut down the government, but I think that is really unfortunate that, that happened um, because these people were owed money and we let them. Do. We all have, collectively, not just Democrats, everyone involved in this process let
1: them. Yeah, do. and by all accounts, it seems like they didn't include it in the deal because Republicans said, "Oh, Trump said he wouldn't sign this deal," you know. And it's like, well, fuck that. <laughs> I mean,
2: yeah. It's, like here, if you gave if this exact deal went left the Senate with contractor backpay, Trump is not vetoing it over contra- contractor backpay. That is like that is an absurd uh, reason. Yeah to not do this.
1: Um, Okay, well, we will see if he uh, ends up signing this deal by the time you listen to this. Maybe it'll have already passed one house, but um, stay tuned. Uh, All right, let's talk about Trump's trip to El Paso earlier this week, where he held his first rally of the 2020 campaign, uh, gave a stump speech that's basically his same, you know, brown terrorists are invading us routine from 2016 with a few new attacks on socialism, abortion... And Beto O'Rourke, who delivered an anti-Wall speech at the same time, just a few blocks away. Uh, Funny aside here, Trump bragged that his crowd count was 35,000 and Beto's was 2 to 300. Though the truth was that Trump's was 10,000 and Beto's was 10 to 15,000. So he's just a little off on that crowd count. (laughs) Um, What, if anything, struck you about Trump's first campaign speech? What argument is he making? What proactive argument is he making for his own re-election?
2: It I mean it's always hard to extract uh, something a you know a quote unquote message or strategy out of anything Trump does. This one was on one level the delusional ravings of a dishonest moron with a cable addled braid, right? It was like conspiracy theories. it was crazy it, like all over the map. like if you had to like read the words of it, you would it would be exhibit a in a 25th amendment. Uh, hearing against Trump, right? It's a, it's very alarming. But on another level, he is making a, you know, he, it's, there's almost a self-awareness to how he's doing this is that Trump knows in some way, I think down deep that he is not likable, right? (laughs) That there are large numbers of people who don't, who don't like him, but he remains incredibly confident in his ability to make the, whoever he is, facing off against or running against even more unlikable. And from the Trump positive message standpoint, it's all over the map. Like we need a wall. We're building a wall. I have saved you from um, armies of migrants and MS-13. Armies of migrants and MS-13 are about to kill you. It, like it doesn't make a lot of sense, but he does, he is making an argument that Democrats are too radical to govern this country. And he is doing that with, a measure of consistency that is very dishonest, at, but it it is a, it is a message.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, we again, every uh, incumbent president goes through this when they face re-election, and we did this too as, as Obama was facing re-election in 2012. Um, the opposition party, opposition candidate, wants to make the election a referendum on the president, right? So was Trump a good president these last four years? Did you like Trump as president? Do you want four more years of this shit? Right, That's the question that we want to ask. As the incumbent, what you try to do is say, no, this isn't a referendum. This is a choice between me, who maybe you don't like that much. Maybe you're a little disappointed with, with me and my policies and my record, but look at the other guys. <laughs> look what they have to offer. Look how extreme that is. And... We successfully did this in 2012 against Mitt Romney, and we did it largely around economic issues and economic vision. Look at Mitt Romney's vision for the country. He wants to give huge tax cuts to rich people and screw over working people. That was the choice that we forced people to make. And Barack Obama is going to continue to fight for you. And I think you're right. Like in in this reelection, Trump Trump can't win this election, but he's going to try to make the Democrats lose this election. Um, so he can't, he can't get his approval ratings up that far, right? Like they've been stuck at, they've been stuck between 38 and 44% since he's been in office. They probably haven't moved uh, much at all. And so he's going to, he's sitting there with 44, 45%. Maybe in some of these swing states, he'll be up to 46, 47%. That's not 50. What he's going to try to do is, whoever the Democratic nominee is, paint that person as an out of touch, extreme, you know, weirdo.
2: Yeah. It's like, you may not like me, but you're going to fucking hate this other person. And
1: like you hit on what
2: is the exact dynamic of elections, which is when someone is running for president, their strategy is to make people want change. And when you're running for reelection, your strategy is to make people fear change. And how Democrats define what that change is will determine our ability to win this election.
1: Yeah. I mean, what do you think about the specific attacks on Democrats? You know, he basically he called Democrats, quote, the party of socialism, late term abortion, open borders and crime. Just to put a real fine point on it. He said that the Green New Deal would eliminate airplanes and cars and tear down buildings. Uh, and then he called Beto a young man who's got very little going for himself, except he's got a great first name. What, what do you think about these attacks, at least on the issues and the socialism? And uh, what, what's he trying to do there?
2: I mean, it's exactly what we're saying is he is trying to make Democrats seem so radical that even if you were uncomfortable with Trump, you would be much more uncomfortable with what these Democrats are trying to do. And you do sort of see in here why I don't want everyone to panic when I say this, but why usually incumbents win re-election, right, Mm -hmm. which is the Democrats are going to spend the next 15 months having a debate among themselves about the Green New Deal, Medicare for all, you know, what sort of economic policies we want to put in place, all good and it's a good and important conversation. But Trump, the RNC, uh, the Koch brothers, the uh, Fox News, you know, and somewhat aided and abetted by the mainstream media are going to spend the next 15 months demagoguing the Democratic position, sort of making you believe that if a Democrat is elected, we're going to take your car away and you're going to have to take a you have to ride a bike to get a salad right it's a <laughs> uh like that i mean that's hard right that like that is all that is the huge advantage that incumbents have is that they get to they get to make their argument straight for a year and a half while you're busy making your argument you're not talking to any voters who are not democratic primary voters you're only arguing to the people to your base for 15 months and that that is a challenge the democrats have to think not just the democrats running but the democratic progressive world writ large is gonna have to think really hard about how we prevent Trump from defining what being meaning a Democrat means before the day the Democratic nominee steps on stage at our convention and be and picks up the mantle
1: yeah and look this is what we faced on the first campaign that I ever worked on with, uh, with John Kerry was the Democratic nominee and going into that campaign everyone thought oh everyone hates George W Bush everyone doesn't you know people don't like the war in Iraq people th-, you know and they thought that you know, it was going to be easier to prosecute this case against George W. Bush, and yet he was able to define John Kerry before John Kerry was able to define himself with tons of money and the Swift Boat ads and all this other stuff as this sort of out-of-touch, aloof weirdo. Um, And uh it was effective enough to secure George W. Bush with another term. And I think, you know, it is... It is not going to be easy, <laughs> and I guess the question is like, what? How? How? What can Democratic candidates do about Trump demonizing them and the party? As you know, five hundred of them are running against each other. Is there? Is there anything that we can do? How should we respond to this? What do you think?
2: I I think it's really hard to tell you know Kamala Harris or Elizabeth Warren or Cory Booker or anyone to say, hey. Go try to win the Iowa caucus, but also try to win Ohio in the general at the same time. That's an impossible task. No campaign will do that. I think it's going to be this is a responsibility that's going to be go to the rest of us, right? To figure out how to keep Trump on his heels. It's going to be Nancy Pelosi's responsibility. It's going to be the DNC's responsibility. It's going to be, you know, whatever progressive, um, Super PAC infrastructure there is to keep Trump on his heels. I don't. I just don't know that the Democrats can do it. Look, every time they have the national stage, they should make an arguments. You know, spend a, make an argument against Trump and Trumpism. You know, I think we've seen a lot of that. Like, you know, we talked about uh, Kamala Harris's speech in Oakland was a very strong argument against Trumpism. Um, others have done it, but so use your platform to push back. But I think every, others are going to have to pick up the slack because. We don't live in a world – like it used to be you would think, well, you know, Trump always gets shitty press coverage, so he'll just get shitty press coverage for the next 15 months and then Democrats can start prosecuting the case against him. And And that's just not how the world works in our filter bubble uh, information economy. And so you're going to have to – like other parts of the – the small handful of Democrats not running for president are going to have to spend the next you know 12 to 15 months prosecuting the case aggressively.
1: Yeah, I mean – we have said for a long time that it is very important for Democrats not just to oppose Trump, but to offer a positive vision and agenda of their own. And that is true, but everything is a balance. And I do think, you know, Democrats are going to be arguing over which Medicare for all plan uh, to embrace or to pursue. And there's going to be all kinds of arguments on that. But they should also remind people Donald Trump gets reelected. Uh, people's health insurance is going away. They are going to finish the job that they started and repeal the Affordable Care Act and 20 million people will lose health insurance. Uh, Democrats can argue over which Green New Deal plan is the best and how far we should go uh, and how fast we should go in decarbonizing the economy. That's fine. But let's remember, Donald Trump is reelected It's a party. He's part of a party that doesn't believe that climate change exists and nothing will be done about climate change for another four years when we only have basically 10 years to stop it. You can argue over some late term abortion bill that applies to like, you know, 1% of people in the world, or you can say Donald Trump going to be reelected again. There will be no women's right to choose. It will be over. It will be ended because he will be able to appoint another justice to the Supreme Court probably, and that will be that. So like, there are very real consequences to Donald Trump being reelected that are far greater Than any kind of little arguments we're having over which policy we're pursuing and how far it can go, and I think that that definitely has to be part of the Democratic candidates' message as they're arguing with each other over these next you know nine ten months.
2: Yeah, that's right. It's like we have to we have to keep the stakes of the election as high as possible for our voters, and that is something that
1: yes, all you know we can do,
2: other Democratic officials can do, but also the candidates can do out on the stump.
1: Um. Well, let's talk about one of those potential candidates. Let's talk about Beto's response. Can I say to Trump one thing about the Green New Deal first?
2: Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Like Trump spent a lot of time on that, and a lot of pundits have written that Democrats are, you know, have given Trump a cudgel. Right. They're given him a path to re-election by doing the Green New Deal. And what I, there's that's like a one that's a really stupid way to think about something when the fucking planet is melting before our eyes. <laughs> um, but. It is also possible that something can be good politics for Trump and good politics for the Democrats at the same time. Yeah. Right. Like, yes, there are elements of the Green New Deal that Trump can demonize and scream about and ca- and panic some people about. But it also it's basically, I think, table stakes for Democrats to appeal to young voters to offer a bold Climate change plan that is commiserate to the threat that the country faces, and so it it doesn't have to be is this good for Democrats, good for Republicans. It could be both, and the ultimate decision, the ultimate verdict on how well it works will de- will depend on who does a better job in the final weeks making the argument around it. Right, yeah. it's like there's not a I don't think there's a world where the Democrats could really have come out and just like offered the same. You know, circa 2009 cap and trade plan, and appealed to um, younger voters. I, w- I did an event here in San Francisco last night with Michael Tubbs. Oh yeah, we had as our, our guest at our Sacramento show last Crooked year. Contributor. He's for people who don't know, he's the 28 year old mayor of Stockton, California, and one of the most impressive public officials you'll meet. But I asked him, like, you're the millennial mayor. How do you? How do politicians reach millennials? Like, what do they care about? And he said. I want to have a planet to live on when I'm 50, Yeah. right? And he said, that's the thing he hears all the time from young people. And I think we have to recognize the way young people view climate change. And that's why the Sunrise Movement and AOC and everyone else were right to push this. And Democrats had no choice but to embrace it. It's, the, it's both good policy and good policy. Well,
1: and again, what we saw in El Paso from Trump, you know, lying about getting rid of airplanes and bikes and all this bullshit. Trump is going to lie about and exaggerate and demonize Any plan or proposal from Democratic politicians. He just spent the 2018 election saying that we wanted terrorists and criminals to overrun our country. He has talked about, you know, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton being the founders of ISIS. Like, he has gone there on every single argument and will continue to. So the idea that we should, you know, strategize about our own policy agenda based on the attacks that may or may not come from Donald Trump and the Republican Party is silly because they have gone they have been calling us socialists for the last 40 years. <laughs> Barack Obama was a socialist, remember? Barack Obama was also like a Kenyan Muslim imposter, right? Like they they will use every single argument in the book they have. They nothing will stop them from saying something crazy about Democrats. So, should we so when we construct our policies and our proposals, we should think about what is necessary and, you know, what we can sort of cobble together a majority around. It's a to pass, right? Like that there are very real arguments that we're going to have over what kind of medicare plan to embrace, what kind of green new deal to embrace, but they should be about what we can actually get done once we have power. We shouldn't we shouldn't trim our sails based on what the republicans are going to say about us because they're going to call us everything.
2: Yes, the, the Affordable Care Act, a healthcare plan that originally ca- based on an idea from the Heritage Foundation, based on a plan do- uh enacted by Republican Mitt Romney that did amazing things but did not go as far as we would like, was called socialist the entire 2012 campaign of Barack Obama won. So what are they going to call Medicare for all like? extra socialist to like (laughs) supersize socialism it's like just do what we're gonna do like like these are hard arguments you're we're gonna have to win them but we we have to win them on our terms and not let trump define the four corners of the argument
1: right right and that doesn't mean that doesn't mean there's room for people who want more moderate policies like that's fine but but propose that because it's what you believe not because you're worried about the republicans are going to say
2: and freak out about it just a little bit less.
1: Explore the latest polls, what they actually mean, and whether or not it's time to hit the panic button. Tune into Polar Coaster with Dan Pfeiffer, Cricket's latest subscriber-exclusive show. To get access, subscribe to our Friends of the Pod community only at cricket.com slash friends.
0: Hey, it's Lovett, and I'm on my way to your city. And by on my way, I mean I'm still in the shower, but still, about to head out. Love it or leave it, Live on Tour is heading all over the country. We'll be in Charlotte, Asheville, Boston, Madison, Chicago, and Pittsburgh. And if we're not coming to your city this time, I'm sorry, the country is too big. Take it up with the pioneers. To learn more and get tickets, head to crooked.com slash events.
3: Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst.
1: What did you think of his event and the speech he gave? And what hints uh, does it give about, you know, the kind of presidential candidate he might be if he uh, finally chooses to enter the race?
2: Well, it was just generally interesting to see because, you know, the last time all of us, the political world, saw Beto was basically the night... Before the election and his last big rally, very emotional rally in El Paso. And yeah. like in that, we had spent, you know, more than a year seeing him have these, you know, very powerful rhetorical moments, these large crowds, this excitement around his candidacy. And then it's been dark for a long time. Like he's just been sort of off the stage. He's been driving around posting on Medium that's received mixed responses to say the least from at least the political world. And just in a world in which everything happens so fast, he just he's been absent, right? Like you just haven't seen him. And so to like that event was a reminder why he caught the, you know, a good portion of the political world's imagination, Um, maybe actually more than political world. You know, he he became he became a national figure in a in a long shot ish Senate race. And that was a reminder of what that is, like what that means for him as a presidential candidate is an open question. He showed some of the strengths that we think he would bring to. We've talked about before. He would bring to President Japan in the sense that, you know, the only successful Democratic campaigns match enthusiasm and organization, and he certainly yeah. has the ability to get a crowd. And that at least gives you the chance to make an argument in front of people, which means you have a chance to win Iowa, and that's sort of the whole thing. So, I think the challenge for him is he's going to have to make an argument for why him. Not the others, right? I think that's sort of yeah. going to be becoming incumbent on these candidates is explain what they uniquely bring to the field, and ex- but and you have to be almost explicit. Not attack the other person, but what is the thing that the field is lacking that you offer? And I think that that is going to be a challenge for everyone who is either running or thinking, or the seven thousand people were thinking of getting in, whether it's Biden or Bernie or Beto or Stacey Abrams or all the others. Is why you right? Like, why are you better than the others, right? It can't just be we're all equal and we'll just let the voters decide. You have to make an argument for why you are a better vehicle for winning this election and bringing the progressive, implementing the progressive policies that we care about.
1: You know, it's interesting. I think pundits and, you know, D.C. folks always tend to underestimate the power of enthusiasm, which is often measured by very large crowds and uh, very large, sort of grassroots fundraising, and they always do this because. And you look, they did this to us, to Obama. Uh, we did this in 2016 with Trump's crowds, <laughs> um, and with Bernie's, to be honest. And with Bernie's, that's right. And you know, and I think people did it with with Beto too. And a crowd. Look, you know, one of the reason that Kamala Harris is you know at the top of the field right now is because in her announcement, suddenly 20,000 people showed up in Oakland. That's very impressive. And if you had told the DC set before her announcement that like, oh, she gets a huge crowd in Oakland, will that matter much? They probably like rolled their eyes. But when you actually see the crowd and you see the enthusiasm, suddenly most of these people are like, oh yeah, that is a pretty big deal. (laughs) And like the fact that, that Beto was able to get you know, and the people of El Paso and the organizers in El Paso, because they helped organize that crowd as well. But the fact that that crowd was able to assemble 10 to 15,000 people in just a few days notice to sort of act as a counter rally to Donald Trump, to the president coming to El Paso is very significant, I think. And, you know, as you said, talking about like, the why, right, which I think, the longer you're sort of to still deciding whether to get into the presidential race like Beto is, like Bernie is, like Joe Biden is, um, it becomes an even greater challenge to look at the field that we have and say, okay, what's missing from that field that I bring? And I think Beto's argument would probably be, uh, at least you saw a hint of this during that rally, which is, you know, he really focused on sort of like a revival of democracy and civic participation itself, right? Like that the only way that we're going to not just beat Donald Trump, but sort of restore the America that we want to be is for people to show up at events like this, to be active, to be active, you know, to, to participate in our democracy again. And that's sort of what his campaign was about. So you can start to sort of see what his message might be. And I also thought it was interesting with his rally that, you know, we've been talking about, how a Democrat handles Donald Trump, and we've said, you know, well, you don't want to respond to everything that Donald Trump does, and always be like, you know, he he says something offensive, and then you're forced to respond, and then you're going down the path with Donald Trump, and that doesn't really help. And then, but I think there's there's something between that and sort of doing your own thing apart from Donald Trump when you know that the media attention is always going to be on Donald Trump. And Beto's rally sort of found that middle ground uh, in El Paso because it was it was a response but it wasn't a response directly to Donald Trump it was a response to the country and it was bigger and hopeful and positive but he was still able to get that split screen by making sure that you know when Donald Trump had a rally he had a counter rally and i think that's an interesting Option for all the Democratic candidates that when Trump is holding an event, Trump is talking about something, you talk about that thing also, but you sort of show why you're different than Donald Trump, as opposed to just going back and forth and tit for tat with him.
2: Yeah, that's right. You know, I thought it was you know was really interesting, and as you sort of look at the field, there, you know, as big as it is and as big as it could be, there are lots of candidates with lots of different strengths and you know weaknesses and. You know, I do think one of the things that Beto would bring to the field, it's something that I, you know, from the candidates I've seen thus far that I think Kamala Harris, Pete Buttigieg, and, um, you know, potential candidate Stacey Abrams bring is just a very, uh, like a good way of handling Trump, right? Like not getting overly yeah. rattled by him, but making a broader argument against, it's easy to argue against the man Trump, right? He is a walking set of flaws and crimes, but there was also you have to argue about what Trump represents, yeah, because that's the true danger of the country. I think Beto did that a lot in his campaign. He did that the other night. I thought that was a theme of uh, of Kamala Harris's speech, of Stacey Abrams' response. I've seen you know Pete Buttigieg's interviews. You know, discuss talk about it from the perspective of of a millennial and a person who served in the military, but like that to me is it like you can get out if you every American people are not stupid. They know that Trump is a massively flawed individual. They know that he lies. They know that he has probably been involved in all kinds of criminal, at least crime adjacent activities over the years. They know he's absurd. They know he's chaotic. They know he sends terrible tweets. Like we, like everyone gets that, and people voted for him despite that, right? But there is a broader danger to what he represents and how it is diverges from the tradition of how we think of ourselves as America. that that is the true like that I think is what will, the people who can make that argument that will separate that will be the separation between the the best candidates to run against Trump and the rest of the field.
1: Yeah. Uh, all right, let's talk about less pleasant 2020 news. Uh, on Tuesday night, CNN hosted a town hall in Texas with former Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz, the billionaire who's deciding whether to run for president. Why should we care about this? Uh, I see a lot of people on Twitter. Why are we giving so much attention to him? Why are we talking about him? Why are Democrats so upset? So here's why. Uh, We've learned through a new analysis uh, provided to Crooked Media that the only person Schultz's candidacy could help become president is Donald Trump. This was an analysis by Katie Connolly and Joel Benenson of the Benenson Strategy Group. Uh, As some of you know, Joel is a friend of the pod who was Obama's chief pollster from 2008 on. uh, Basically, here's what they did. They gave Trump every state where a Republican has won by more than 10 for four of the five last elections in a row. And then they gave the Democratic candidate every state where a Democrat has won by more than 10 points for four of the five last elections in a row. Then they labeled the rest of the state's battlegrounds. And this is a generous map full of battleground states. So like Oregon's a battleground state, even though Democrats have won Oregon in every race since like 1984, Texas is a battleground state, even though Republicans have been winning Texas nonstop. Um, so uh, the battle so when they did all this, the battlegrounds that were left after you had safe Democratic and safe Republican states only added up to 268 electoral votes. So even if Howard Schultz runs the table, On every single battleground in this expanded battleground map, he doesn't get the 270 votes he needs to win. And if no candidate gets the 270 votes, which would happen in that scenario, what happens is the election is thrown to the House of Representatives. Now, the House of Representatives, if they have to decide the election, it's not just a simple majority that decides it. Each state gets one vote. Each state delegation in the House gets one vote, Well, right now... Republicans control 26 state delegations in the House. Democrats only control 22, and the rest are tied. So Trump wins in that scenario. And beyond that, there are plenty of other scenarios where even if Schultz peels off a tiny percentage of Democratic votes in battleground states, he tips the election to Trump. Dan, what did you think of this analysis, and how much of a threat do you think Schultz is to the Democratic candidate in general?
2: I mean, the analysis is exactly right. It is impossible for Howard Schultz to become president. It is. We are we have a two-party system, and he is outside the system. Now, that may not be great. I would be all for getting rid of the Electoral College and moving to a popular vote system, which would increase the chances of independent candidates or third-party candidates to win. But just the simple fact of the matter is it cannot happen. And then you get these fucking actually is from like the Schultz team or reporters so it's like how can you say that Donald Trump and Barack Obama won no one said that could happen like politics is changing except for the fact that politics is changing in the exact way that makes it less likely for Howard Schultz to win the country is getting more polarized and yep. so it makes it harder like the group of voters available to even an appealing Independent candidate, of which Donald Howard Schultz is most certainly not, uh, is smaller. And so, all the only thing that Howard Schultz can accomplish is to win enough votes from people who do not like Trump, but may be unwilling. To cross the line vote for a Democrat if they have some other choice and tip the election to Trump. That is the only thing that can happen. It's all true. I mean, Howard Schultz could run and get zero, you know, essentially zero votes and be it matter nothing, but there is not a world where he becomes president. And if your goal is to become president, you have to run in the primaries of one of the two parties. You do not get to opt out of it because you made a billion dollars and you chain used fancy names for small, medium, and large. Like that, like that's not you yeah. don't get out of like that is not how it works. He cannot become president on this current path. He is wasting all of our fucking times and giving us a lot of anxiety because he poses an existential threat to uh Democrats taking the White House from Trump.
1: Yeah, and look this this last point is very important because of all the people saying, Oh, Democrats are overreacting. He's you know, and look, polls show that uh his favorability rating is garbage people hate him and not just democrats but independents and republicans uh, most of the country doesn't know who he is so people say what's the problem he's not a threat like even if he runs and gets the same percentage of the vote as jill stein did or gary johnson did he could still tip the election to trump remember what we were talking about earlier like trump probably has a ceiling at like 45 46 47 in some of these battleground states and um trump is not trying to to get to 50. He knows he probably can't get to 50. He's going to try to do what he did to Hillary Clinton in 2016, which is try to destroy the Democratic candidate and push some voters, just as tiny, all he needs is a tiny percentage of voters to be pushed away from the Democratic candidate towards one of these third party candidates, whether it's Howard Schultz or Jill Stein or Gary Johnson or someone else, and he can win those states. And look, people in the Clinton campaign will tell you that when they polled, Trump versus Hillary in a lot of these battleground states in a two-way race, Hillary Clinton was consistently winning all through the fall, even in some of these states that Trump ended up winning, like Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. But when you switched it to a four-way poll, when it was Trump and Hillary and Gary Johnson and Jill Stein, she was losing ground, and she was losing ground in the very battleground states that she ended up losing. This is very serious. The man has a billion dollars at his disposal here. And this whole idea, too, like, oh, if we don't talk about him... You know, he won't get attention. Why are we talking about him? Why is the media giving him attention? If the media gave him zero attention, if we gave him zero attention, he's worth a billion dollars. He is going to run, start running ads in the next couple months. That is his team's plan. They've said that he's going to start running ads. He's going to start buying his own media and he's going to start, you know, it's a real threat to the Democratic nominee. It is a very real threat.
2: And even if he is not, even if he decides ultimately to not run for president, he is ta- he has this moment in time where, based on this purported potential presidential campaign, he has a media platform, and he's using that media platform every single day to do Donald Trump's bidding for him. He is seeking to radicalize democrats on core issues saying that medicare for all is unamerican that the t- plans to the immoral, are, wealthy, are ridiculous or unamerican and even in this town hall basically using nra talking points that democrats want to far left democrats want to take away everyone's guns right like he both sides both i don't even yeah. know how you say that word but you know what i'm saying uh, guns <laughs> Days from the one year anniversary of Parkland. It is it is cynical and gross and it is stupid. And maybe the right strategic thing to do is to not send angry tweets about Howard Schultz or to rant about it on this podcast. But that is a level of self-control I currently do not have because everything <laughs> about this effort is infuriating because it is a di- like it is politically dangerous. It is just incredibly cynical. The amount of arrogance is astounding. And it just the Absolute, how bad he is at something as important as running for president infuriates me. Like, if you're going to do a town hall for one hour and take questions with journalists, have some fucking positions. Have an answer to the question of what would happen to your Starbucks stock where you become president. Have an answer about what you would do on day one. Have an answer about whether you release your tax returns. Do have answers to questions. Do like a modicum of fucking prep in Q and A beforehand. It's like it. Like, this is a serious thing, and he, he may be a serious business person who did a very, very good job running Starbucks, and Starbucks did a lot of very good things, including making the egg bites, Tommy, but he is not I think those a are serious gross. person who
1: did it. I can't believe the response Tommy got on Twitter for shitting on those egg bites. Those things are fucking disgusting.
2: They are not disgusting, <laughs> but here's the point. I, I, I'm glad you brought this up. People can have independent opinions of food. Like, Tommy doesn't have to like the egg bites. I can like the egg bites. And for all you people on Twitter, there's no right or wrong answer to that. Like, that is your opinion. It's like people were mad at me for liking them. They were furious at Tommy for, st- for opposing such an easy, low-carb <laughs> breakfast on the go. Like, y- you have a choice. You can like – like, it's like there's no right answer to the egg bites. Like, I like him. Tommy doesn't like him. We both have that right. I don't make him eat him. He doesn't stop me from eating him. Like, the rest of you people need to, like, just – like it's not like I even got like direct messages from people who were like, way to fight on the egg bites, Dan. Don't let Tommy cow you. <laughs> it's like, who cares? I know, it, like we all have our breakfast. Like that's just how it's It's
1: not is. like uh it's not like liking Elliot Abrams, you know? We're not gonna get into that. <laughs> uh. <laughs> well, yeah,
2: there are, on some things there is a right and wrong answer, but food choices, music yeah. choices, which TV shows you like, like that's your opinion. You're welcome to it. It's like eat what you enjoy, watch what you enjoy, read what you enjoy. Don't spend time yelling at people for enjoying different things. It's a, 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 a national crisis. This is not a good use of energy.
1: As we know, I am a very big fan of Dunkin' Donuts, specifically the Dunkin' Donuts coffee, which some people think is, you know, just gross sugar water. I want it. I want more of it. Give it to me all the time. That's what I love. Um, but anyway, back to, back to Howard Schultz, <laughs> back to, back to yes. the, the coffee man who's trying to ruin our democracy. I just look, if Howard Schultz ends up running and gets on the ballot, then maybe it's time to stop talking about him and not give him attention. Right now, our goal should be to try to persuade him that running is a very bad idea (laughs) and that he will have no support to do so. And persuading him and persuading his advisors. And I know that a lot of people had tweeted us, yes, we did work with Bill Burton and Bill knows exactly how we feel about this and has not been persuaded as of yet. But um, we, we should be, all of us right now, trying to persuade these people not to undertake... This candidacy, which could only elect Donald Trump and could not elect Howard Schultz, and could only hurt the Democratic nominee, it is it is serious, and um and I don't think it's an overreaction at all because, like I said, you know, no one knew about fucking Gary Johnson didn't get any attention in the last race or very little. Jill Stein didn't get much attention, but in critical states, they helped swing the election away from Hillary Clinton. It happens. It happens. So this this is not a prediction, but the most
2: likely scenario. Is that Michigan, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Florida are decided by a point? Like that is the difference. Like the last yep. election was by eighty thousand voters over three states. It is like it'll be. It is likely to be that close again. That is just how elections operate in this uh, polarized world. And so every little thing matters. And if Howard Schultz pulls at one percent. In Wisconsin, he could be the reason Donald Trump gets elected. This is not about whether he can get 15% or 20% or 30%. It's about whether he can get 1%. And that's how much these things matter.
1: Good times. Okay. When we come back, we will have Dan's conversation with independent journalist Marcy Wheeler.
3: Guys, it's been a rough year
2: And freak out about it just a little bit less.
1: Explore the latest polls, what they actually mean, and whether or not it's time to hit the panic button. Tune into Polar Coaster with Dan Pfeiffer, Crooked's latest subscriber exclusive show. To get access, subscribe to our Friends of the Pod community only at slash friends.
2: We are so excited to be joined once again by Marcy Wheeler, who is a journalist who covers national security and civil liberties. You can read her work at EmptyWheel.net. She is a friend of the pod and an expert in all things Russia, Mueller, general Trump-related criminal conspiracies. Marcy, thanks for being here.
4: Great to be on, as always.
2: Marcy, lots of news to discuss this week, but let's start with the ruling uh, from from the judge that Manafort had lied to Mueller on multiple occasions. Uh, What is the significance of that ruling for Manafort specifically, but for the Mueller investigation writ large?
4: For Manafort in particular, it means he's probably looking at much closer to a life sentence. Um, The import of the ruling yesterday from Amy Berman Jackson is that the prosecutors are no longer bound by the plea agreement and they don't have to give Manafort a downward uh, departure on his sentencing. She did leave open and say there are other factors to consider about whether or not he has taken uh, responsibility for the things he pled guilty to before me. But um, the but the other detail about that is Andrew Weissman, who's one of Mueller's prosecutors, suggested that one of the things Manafort lied about, in particular, uh, the what happened at an August 2, 2016 meeting where Manafort and Rick Gates went and met with suspected uh, Russian intelligence asset Konstantin Kalimnik and handed over recent, very detailed polling data from the Trump campaign and at the same meeting had a conversation about a Ukrainian peace deal, which Manafort recognized was a backdoor sanctions uh, relief policy discussion. Um, Weissman suggested that the reason Manafort lied about those issues, particularly sharing the polling data, is because he believed that if it became public, if if Manafort did admit to handing over that data willingly, then um, Trump was much less likely to pardon him. So he's still playing for a pardon. What it means for Mueller's investigation, we don't know. I, I laid out today some of the things we can tell about what didn't make it into that breach uh, negotiation. And one of the things is... Mueller has additional information to support the claim that Manafort willingly sa- shared that polling data. So it's something that the judge in the case had seen, but that the defense has not seen. So can Ma- can Mueller still charge the Trump campaign for basically willingly conspiring with the Russians based on that meeting? We don't know. Um, I guess, tune in. <laughs> exactly.
2: Um- I saw a Twitter exchange that you had with John Weaver, who is a Republican strategist who worked for John Kasich and a number of other Republicans and is firmly in a never Trump camp about the significance of the detail of that polling information, because it has been discussed previously. I know you've written about this as if it was mainly public information or largely not actionable information for the Russians. What gives you reason to believe that it's more than just that?
4: Yeah, that, that Twitter conversation was one of my favorite ever, because um, uh, Weaver also knows Manafort, right? I mean, he he knows what this data is about, and he knows Manafort. So um, it is clear that it, in one of the interviews, Manafort tried to say, "Oh, the, oh, it was just public data. And in fact, that was leaked to the New York Times last month when this first became public, that it was just public data. But there is a passage where Richard Westling, who is Manafort's attorney, not He's not working for Mueller, where Westling says, well, that data wasn't very useful because it was so detailed. It's just gibberish to me. And the judge in the case, Amy Berman Jackson, is like, yeah, that's the point. That's why it's so important <laughs> that you shared it. Um, Westling went on to to use language about it being recent, that, um, that they tried to explain away an email from Manafort to Gates saying, print this out. By saying that was to prepare for a scheduling meeting that day, earlier that day on August 2nd. Um, and that would suggest that it was recent, that it was very detailed. Westlink said, well, you know, Constantin Kalimnik could never use this. And then Weissman came back and said, look, you know, Kalimnik has worked with Manafort for years and years and years. So he knows how Manafort uses polling data, but also Uh, At that meeting, according to Rick Gates, at least, at that meeting, Manafort walked Kalimnik through what the data was showing. So that is, um, you know, to the extent that Mueller can substantiate that, that um, is—and by the way, there's also a a redacted reference in the hearing um, that suggests Manafort knew this was going to Oleg Deripaska as well, Uh, the the line that Manafort would like— To have is that it just went to some Ukrainian oligarchs who still owed Manafort two point four million dollars. And oh, by the way, they were paying him in November for that. But um, but there is reason to to believe, not least because this meeting on August 2nd happened. And then Oleg Deripaska's plane came into Newark uh, the the next day, so there's really good reason to believe this meeting was significantly about Oleg Deripaska, whom Manafort was in discussions with Kalimnik about, so he could get quote get whole on a twenty million dollar debt that he owed to Deripaska. Those are the things that Weissman suggests made sharing this data for Manafort a win-win. So in other words, even if it didn't help Trump, then he was going to get money from his Ukrainian and Russian paymasters. And so he was willing to do it regardless of of the campaign considerations. But um but uh it it's damning as as John Weaver said and I think he's right. This is Manafort giving Konstantin Kalimnik the crown jewels. And giving him the crown jewels right before the russians started doing some really detailed targeting on their social media campaign and also it's important to add and this never gets enough attention GRU Russian military intelligence went back and hacked hillary's analytics from starting i think uh september 9th or something and go, and they did that multiple times over the course of september uh it was it was analytics hosted on on an AWS server and so in in August, then, Kalimnik gets really detailed information from the Trump side. And in September, Russian military intelligence goes in and gets some of the most detailed information from the Hillary side. And that's really powerful data. And, you know, as Weissman and Amy Berman Jackson both know, Kalimnik has worked with Manafort long enough to know what to do with that data.
2: And you mentioned that... Manafort is still making a pardon play. Potentially, is like does he does he have reason to believe that he should get a pardon? It it seems to me just like you look at this that you know Manafort has the choice to either spend some of his life in jail or all of his life in jail, and to hinge that you know, that decision on Donald Trump's willingness to do something seems risky. Is there any other reason that Manafort would not want to do this? Is there a fear of the Russians in here? Or it just seems like a strange rationale to somewhat obviously put yourself in jail for the rest of your life.
4: Well, I mean, I do think the pardon consideration is real. And one of the details that, uh, didn't come out but came out by its absence in this whole breach negotiation, is that Manafort, in addition to the joint defense agreement, which has you know, has gotten a lot of attention. so um, uh, Kevin Downing, one of Manafort's lawyers, remained in touch with Rudy Giuliani through the entire time that he was supposedly cooperating. Um, Manafort was also in touch with the White House and Mueller very interestingly, Did not show their hand on that, on those communications. So there's this point where Weissman is saying, or sorry, where Greg Andres is saying, um, yeah, we think he lied and was telling the White House uh, what questions he was being asked. But they were not relying on just the conversations that went through the lawyer. So, in other words, Manafort continued to talk to people in the White House about the investigation, and and that would go to the obstruction question, right? Right. Um, But but going back to does he fear the Russians, one of the things he lied about was – um, or or two, the, the key, one of the key thrusts of what he lied about is what his real relationship with Konstantin Kalimnik was. And he made this claim that um, the reason he downplayed Konstantin Kalimnik's conspiracy with Manafort, and a lot of people don't understand this, but Manafort has already pled guilty to conspiring with Russian Konstantin Kalimnik. It just has to do with stuff he did in 2018, not 2016. But in any case... When he, when Manafort pled guilty to conspiring with Kalimnik, Kalimnik apparently said, I don't think I really was witness tampering with you. And Manafort suggested that—and this is not very credible, I think— but Manafort suggested that Kalimnik was worried about the safety of his own family. So it's possible that the Russians are pressuring Kalimnik and Manafort— To try and downplay this, because otherwise their investment in helping Trump get elected uh, will will be ruined. Right. Right. Um, But I think there as as Weissman said, it's a win win for him. I mean, I think Manafort's got a lot of issues going on. He's broke. He's got the Russians bearing down on him. Oleg Deripaska asking for his 20 million dollars back. He needs to have a win with Trump to get out of that hole. Um, that's a desperate situation, and so it's not surprising he did what he did back in August 2016. Um, but it does appear that the record supports that he did do it.
2: And switching topics for a second here, Andrew McCabe uh, has a 60 Minutes interview coming out this weekend, where the first, uh, which is related to a book he has coming out as, as well, I believe. But the first excerpts came out, and in it, among other things, uh, McCabe talks about. You know, discussions in the Justice Department about potentially seeing if you could recruit um, Pence and members of the cabinet to invoke the 25th Amendment against Trump after he fired um, uh, Comey. You you tweeted this morning uh, – You know, suggesting that McCabe maybe should have waited until uh, there was a new replacement for Rod Rosenstein before he did this. What's your reaction to that news and what concerns you about McCabe's admission, given the state of the Mueller investigation in the Department of Justice?
4: Well, I mean, this story has come out twice before, uh, both via The New York Times, um, both at really inopportune times for the Mueller investigation, um, The first time it came out, Rod Rosenstein went to the White House and kind of held Trump's hand and get him got him to back down off firing him, although that was a time when Matt Whitaker seemed to be pushing to get Rod Rosenstein fired himself. We've got, uh, you know, so by the time this podcast is done, Bill Barr will be will have been voted attorney general. Right. So once Barr is attorney general, then there's another what's called superior officer, somebody who's been confirmed by the Senate, who's in charge of Rod Rosenstein and, and Mueller. Um, and and that's a really important structure for the legality of Mueller's investigation. You gotta have somebody who's confirmed in that, in that chain of command. But until Barr is in place, um, and until Barr, you know, Rosenstein has said that he'll he's gonna stay long enough to protect the Mueller investigation. Bill Barr, you know, he's friends with Mueller, he's an institutionalist, he believes in the Department of Justice unlike Matt Whitaker. Um, and so I think well, he is a lot of things. He's incredibly conservative. He's going to make Trump incredibly powerful by talking about the unitary executive. He is less bigoted than both Matt Whitaker and Jeff Sessions, but he's also friends with with Mueller and I think will come to some understanding of what Mueller is actually investigating, as frankly, Matt Whitaker did to some degree. Um, and and Barr will be in a position, I think, to prevent Trump from doing anything rash to end the investigation, particularly if you've got both Barr and Rosenstein. But until that's in place, we're still at a very fragile time, right? Um, until that's in place, there's still the possibility that Trump and his White House lawyers will find a way to— to undermine the investigation. And Mueller does appear to be close to whatever he's moving towards. Um, And and we, you know, we just didn't. I'm happy for McCabe to air what happened. I'm happy for Rosenstein when he retires to air his side of what happened. Um, That may get charged as obstruction of justice, right? Or it may get sent to the House Judiciary Committee um, to review for impeachment But until we get to the point where Mueller's investigation is actually protected, I, I, you know, I wish it weren't, I wish it were blowing up in two weeks time rather than today.
3: Right.
2: Um, the. You talk about Mueller getting sort of to the end of where he's going, and the understanding of everyone is that that is going to be a report of some kind, some number of reports, some different kinds of reports, whatever it is. But there is this question that was raised in both the bar hearing and with your friend Mark Whitaker about whether that report will ever be made public. And I'm sort of curious about what it would mean were it not to be made public, because if the decision in within the Justice Department is to abide by the protocol that a president can't be indicted, like w- the only way that you could act on that evidence would be if it if Congress had a chance to see it. Would Congress get the report? And if they got the report, could they release it? It's just it's not it just doesn't make a lot of sense to me as to what would happen. A you know could the report not be released? And B would Congress you know would Adam Schiff or Jerry Nadler have any recourse to subpoena the report or make it public on their own?
4: Well, um, you said everyone agrees there's going to be a report. I actually don't. Um, The the report, such as it exists, is meant solely to be a declinations, a charging and declinations report to the attorney general. And so um, Mueller could come out next week and charge Don Jr. and Jared Kushner and who knows who else in a big conspiracy case that names Donald Trump as a co-conspirator. And that would be a, a prosecution be something for which there is a ton of evidence. I mean, I'm not sure whether he's going there or not, although, you know, I've heard, certainly heard rumblings. Um, and C, would be far more um, meaningful, I think, for the American public than any report that is mandated by the special counsel regulations. And I've been arguing for a long time that Mueller has been... Um, issuing what are called speaking indictments. I mean, we know what we know largely because, for example, in Michael Cohen's plea deal in December, um, Mueller gave a lot of hints of where he's headed. Mueller kind of matched up the Trump Tower deal with the June 9th meeting. So we sort of can assume that's where he's headed. I did a post on on Thursday where I... um, Laid out, again, some of the stuff that didn't make it into the breach negotiation, and it makes it clear that um, that Mueller is still at least trying to make the conspiracy case. He's tr- He's got more evidence about the sharing of the polling data, and he's keeping it hidden. And the only reason for him to keep it hidden, because he could have made it public if it was all dead, you know, if it was all uh, water under the bridge at this point, he could have made it public in that in that transcript, and he chose to keep it redacted. So he still at least is trying to go there with the investigation. Um, so A, I think that there we should not rule out another big, the big speaking indictment, which would be a conspiracy case involving probably a quid pro quo um, with towers for sanctions relief and help in the election. Um, but it's not yet clear whether Mueller can get there. The other thing is you asked whether Congress can get the report. Um, the report's probably not going to be that useful, but what would be useful is the grand jury materials. And I can assure you that Jerry Nadler has been thinking about this for some time, which is where it would go. It wouldn't go to Adam Schiff. And that um, there was a there was a um, circuit court ruling, I think yesterday, Josh Gerstein at Politico wrote about it. Um, that that said, yeah, for historic reasons, you can share grand jury material. Um, It's a ruling that supports what happened in Watergate. In in Watergate, basically what Jaworski did was was wrap up all of his evidence and then have the grand jury vote to send it to the House Judiciary Committee. Mueller obviously is aware of that precedent because he's got a Watergate prosecutor on his staff, Nadler has been aware of that precedent and thinking about it for quite some time. And therefore, one would assume that if legally possible, Mueller and Nadler have that in their back pockets. Um, And this 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 court decision, this circuit court decision yesterday, which is not in the D.C. circuit, but nevertheless, it's one of two that lawyers have been looking to. It supports the legality of that happening. It supports the legality of the grand jury saying Here's impeachment wrapped up in a bow. Send me over to Jerry Nadler. So I would expect that that um, that there's there's good reason to believe that would happen. I'm sure Trump would fight it, but there's legal precedent for it, including including Watergate.
2: Well, that is fascinating, uh, Marcy. Thank you so much. Uh, as always, incredibly helpful and intriguing and we're all smarter because of it uh we hope to have you back on soon uh maybe even we'll get this giant uh, speaking indictment or whatever it is on conspiracy and we can talk about that sooner rather than later we'll see thank you so much Marcy.
4: take care
1: thanks again to marcy wheeler for joining us today thanks to all of you for listening and uh monday is a holiday so we will not be recording on monday we will be recording on Tuesday, and the pod will be out uh, late Tuesday afternoon, so check it out.
2: Do you not call it President's Day because Donald Trump is president? Like, are you, is I, that <laughs> a specific boycott of your
1: point? For, for a second, I forgot what holiday it was, because I forgot what <laughs> month it is, because I live in Los Angeles. <laughs> yeah. It's like, is it February? Fair, fair is it March? What What is the three-day holiday here? That's right, it's President's Day. Enjoy your President's Day, everyone.
2: All right, bye, everyone.